We are in the, just the second half, or, or the last two verses of Exodus today, and uh, of Exodus 2. And so I'd like to read that for you today uh, from the message, because I thought it was a really good translation. Oh. It goes like this. Moses has just been uh, run away. And he is living with his father-in-law. And the author of Exodus says this. Many years later, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Their cries for relief from their hard labor ascended to God. God listened to their groanings. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw what was going on with Israel. God understood. Moses fled to Midian. He's living as an immigrant, as a foreigner. He's working for his father-in-law. He's tending sheep. And the author of Exodus turns the lens away from Midian, back to Egypt, to the people who are stuck in slavery. Verse 23 gives you the context. Many years later. Or the CEB says, a long time passed. The old Pharaoh dies, but the people are still groaning. 400 years the people lived in slavery. For 400 years they were oppressed, suffered injustice at the hands of Pharaoh. And doesn't that raise some questions for us? Why does God wait so long? Why doesn't God do something sooner? What's the good news or the expectation for Bob, who was making bricks for years 300 to 350 of slavery? His whole life was spent tending a fire to harden bricks under the whip of an Egyptian master. Where's the good news there? Where was the hope? Where was God in that situation? One verse of the text and the story moves on. But that one verse represents 40 years of slavery and oppression. A long time passed. 40 years Moses is living in Midian. 40 years. I'm not even 40 years old yet. I'm getting close, but not there. I've never waited 40 years for anything in my life. Two years of COVID seems like it's been incredibly long and trying and it's wearing me down. And what am I going to do if it goes for 38 more? A long time passed. In a culture of uh, speed, of, of instant dinners, 30 minutes or less, meal kits, workouts, mortgage approvals, and more, it invites us to slow down. To realize that there are things in this world that will not be solved in a hashtag moment. That will not instantly be resolved with the snap of a finger. It is 40 years, a long time passed, and still the people groaned. It reminds us that those who are the people of God do not experience instant freedom from the things that oppress us and weigh us down. Perhaps often, maybe what our hearts feel is more like the words, 
of the psalmist Asaph when he writes in Psalm 73, but me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I envied the arrogant. I observed how the wicked are well off. Do you hear that? They suffer no pain. Their bodies are fit and strong. They are never in trouble. They aren't weighed down like other people. And that's why they wear arrogance like a necklace, why violence covers them like clothes. Their eyes bulge out from eating so well. Their hearts overflow with delusions. They scoff and talk so cruel from their privileged positions. They plan oppression. Surely the Israelites in Exodus must have felt that way. Where was God? They were suffering. But the followers of Ra, of Geb, Osiris, Horus, and Set, well, they suffer no pain. Their bodies are not broken down by hard labor. They do not seem to be troubled or weighed down. Their violence covers them as they are the slave masters. Their bodies are full from eating well. They continue to use their privilege to plan ways to oppress these Egyptian slaves. And so Exodus raises many questions for us, like what do we mean when we say God is in control? What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? And there's a lot of ink that has been spilled on that topic, and it's a one that will continue to go on and on. Why do we suffer? Why doesn't God just end the pain and make things right now? Uh, it, it has been called, this, this question of why we suffer has been called the bedrock of atheism. It is one of the strongest arguments that people feel for the denial of the existence of God is why if God is so good and why if God is so powerful, why do we suffer for so long? Why does it last for 400 years? What about those Israelites, that generation that lived for 40 years while Moses looked after the sheep? I could uh, spend the next three days explaining to you where I've landed on that question. And we could talk philosophy, we could talk theology, we could talk Bible. I won't. That's, we don't have time for that. I will simply recommend a book written by my mentor and professor, Valerie Rempel. It's tiny. It's only uh, 72 pages. You can read it in a single sitting if you want. It's called Why Do We Suffer and Where Is God When We Do? It's maybe one of the more accessible um, attempts to answer the question that I've, I've come across. And so very simple, very little book if you want to read more, and then we can also dive into the philosophy of it. You can come take a class with me at Horizon in the <laughs> next fall, and I will spend three classes talking about the problem of evil from a philosophical position. So. <laughs> Valerie writes this. It is important to remember that one of our primary claims about the character of God is that God is trustworthy. The Bible repeatedly tells us that God is not like humans who can go back on their word or who practice deception. God's own holy character prevents God from sinning and engaging in evil. This is good news. We can trust God to keep the promises that God has made. And so there's a lot of questions about why do we wait so long, but the 
heart of our response must be, we believe that God is trustworthy. We trust in the character of God, and we trust that character because it is revealed to us in the Jesus who lived and died and rose again. And so the people of Israel suffer. Their cries go up to God, and the question in their hearts must have been, like, is there any hope for us at all? Well, does anyone even hear us as we cry out? And, and maybe you have asked similar questions in your life. Does anyone care about my suffering? Does anyone see me? Does God even care about this? Will God do anything? And if you've asked those questions, then my encouragement to you today is this. You are not alone in asking that question. Every saint for the history of the church has had moments in which they ask those questions. You are not alone. Everyone who suffers asks that question eventually. But those cries, the, the story of Exodus tells us that those cries rise up to God. God hears those cries of Israel and those groanings find their way to the ear of God. So verses 24 and 25 are the hinge point in the story and the great hope that we have for today. There are, we read in the CEB, it says, God heard the cry of grief. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked at the Israelites and God understood. Four verbs that bring us so much hope and comfort today. Wherever there is injustice, wherever there is oppression, we can be sure that the cries of injustice rise up to God and God hears them. Genesis. The story actually has two, two callbacks to the story of Genesis. One is in Genesis 18. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says this, Then the Lord said, the cries of injustice from Sodom and Gomorrah are countless, and their sin is very serious. I will go down now to examine the cries of injustice that have reached me. Have they done all this? If not, I want to know. The cries of injustice go up, God comes down. Genesis 4, God tells Cain that Abel's blood is crying up from the ground up to God. God hears those cries and responds. There is no injustice that can hide in the dark. And while the powerful can wear arrogance like a necklace, they can dress themselves in violence, they can plan oppression in the darkness. Every whisper, every cry, every drop of blood that is shed cries out to God from the ground, and God hears. Every whimper, every sob, every moan that you have cried in the night to the Lord, the Lord hears. Isaiah 59, verse 1 says, Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. God is strong enough to save, and he is sharp of hearing to hear your cry. But God not only hears, God also remembers. Genesis 15, God swears to Abraham that one day his descendants will live in the land of Canaan. And so God makes a covenant, a treaty with Abraham, and they go and they take a bunch of animals and they slice them in half and they place them on two sides like this, and then God walks through the split animals in a pillar of fire and a smoke, 
Oh, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, those symbols might sound familiar. Fire and a cloud, right? And God walks through these two split animals and he says, let this be done to me if I fail to keep my promise to you. God says, let me be split in half if I do not bring your people into the land of Canaan. And so God remembers his promise. The cries rise up. God hears them and says, I remember. I remember the promise that I have made and I will respond. God remembers his ancient treaty and because God's character is trustworthy, he now comes. The next verb in this verse is God looked. God sees their situation, what is happening. And like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cries go up. God comes down to see what is happening. Now, I, I was thinking about this. I was like, well, we probably can't take that too literally, that like God doesn't know what's happening, and so he has to actually come down to investigate what's happening, right? There's some ancient Near Eastern worldview that is speaking into something that we know. But, so it, but I think there is hope for us in that situation because it means that God looks into your situation as well. This is not a God, yeah, sure, you know, like I liked what you were saying, Rochelle, about, you know, it's like, you know, trust my promises, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, God, I know, religion, right? <laughs> and it's like, no, God doesn't just, we can say things like, well, yeah, sure, God sees my situation. But no, no, what this verse is telling us is God knows your situation. God sees you in what you are going through, the struggles that you have, the the hardships that you are walking through. God sees you. God looks at you. This is not a cosmic Santa who knows if you are sleeping or knows if you are good. This is the word telling us that in the midst of our own slavery and our captivity, our hardships, our struggle, whatever it may be, God sees you. And when you cry out to God, God looks and sees what is happening in your life. And then verse 25 ends with punch. God understands. God knows. God knew. God does not remain high above our own pain and captivity. Valerie Rempel writes it like this. Like parents grieving a poor choice their child makes, a choice that will lead to some degree of suffering, God surely suffers with us. It seems inconceivable that a loving God could remain untouched by the weight of human suffering or the groanings of the earth. Sin and its consequences are a problem in need of a solution. As followers of Jesus, we believe that in Jesus, God has begun the work of addressing human pain and suffering. In the incarnation, God took on human form, becoming like us in all things except for sin. In this, we can be assured that God fully understands what it is to be human, to suffer loss, and even death. God knows what it is to suffer. As God the Father, God watched God's own Son suffer the indignities and physical pain of the crucifixion. As the Son, Jesus Christ, God suffered death itself. Although God has not chosen to prevent all human suffering, we can be assured that God understands 
what it is that we experience and what what will be and will be with us in our suffering. Jesus is both our co-sufferer and our hope in the midst of suffering. We have hope because we know that God hears our cries and God is not deaf. We have hope because God's character is trustworthy and God will do the things that he has promised to do. And one of those things he has promised to do is to end all suffering, to redeem all things. And so we trust that in his character, in his trustworthiness, that he will live and fulfill that promise. We have hope because we, God sees us. And the particularity of our situation, God looks and he sees you and me. And God understands. God understands our pain. God suffers with us. God is not, does not remain untouched by the injustice or pain or sadness of this world. In coming to earth and being fully human and fully God, God has experienced suffering and truly understands. And is now working to bring it to an end so that all things will be reconciled in Christ. So I was reminded of Romans 8 this week. Romans 8 goes like this. I believe that the present, that present, that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits, breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it. But in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery and decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children, we know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it is not only creation. We ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first crop of the harvest, also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, We wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit himself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. The one who searches hearts knows how the Spirit thinks because he pleads for the saints consistent with God's will. We know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God. For those who are called, according to his purpose. We're all groaning. We're all waiting for that full and glorious freedom that comes from Jesus. We have a spirit now who intercedes with us, who grieves with us, who gives strength in our weakness as we wait. And we trust that God will work all things for good. Not that God causes any of that evil. Not that any of that is is God's will for our lives, but God can take it and make it something good. That's the promise that we have. None of the things that we experience are beyond God's ability to redeem in the grand cosmic scope of the resurrection and the coming glory. 
We long for his return, for his rule, for his new creation that is to come. Israel took comfort in knowing that God heard, remembered, looked, and understood. But we can have even more confidence than the Israelites, knowing what Jesus has done, knowing his promise to make all things new and to rescue us, to save us. We may struggle to accept that that out of our present, we might struggle to accept that line from Romans, right? That our present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory. That can be hard in the midst of present suffering to believe. But it's our Christian hope. We hope that our suffering is nothing compared to the glory that is coming. We might feel like creation is groaning and suffering, slavery and decay. I'm sure that the Israelites also must have struggled to believe that God would one day lead them out of slavery into the promised land. But God is faithful. God is true. God keeps his promises. And Jesus' perfect sacrifice destroys the power of sin and death. And by raising Christ to life, we too receive life evermore. Would you proclaim with me the bold this mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ it will come again. And I want us to proclaim our hope. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Amen.